This is Healthy Business with Dr. Charles Moak. Learn how to help transform your business into a wildly profitable, well-oiled machine. Start practicing healthcare that not only benefits your patients and your community, but grows your business. Hello, I'm Cam Carmen, and I'm here today with Dr. Moak, and we're talking about Allure Medical's operating system and why it's a success. Give us an overview first, Dr. Moak. So we started this business in really late 2003, and I was working in the hospital as an ER doctor, and we wanted to offer patients something that they couldn't get through their insurance. Mm-hmm. And we were doing some cosmetic things, things were considered cosmetic at the time, Botox, which was really brand new at that time, fillers, sure. which, you know, things like the uh, Juvenum didn't exist yet, mm-hmm. it was collagen, and something called mesotherapy, which was really exciting, it was weighted dissolve fat with a shot and uh, it came I went, I learned it from the Brazilian and French doctors one of the first guys to do it here in the country it really took off immediately people wow. would reduce fat pockets interestingly 10 years later a guy that trained on with me it was eight of us doing in the country mm-hmm. he figured out what component of this mesotherapy was actually killing the fat off got a uh, FDA approval and sold the company to Allergan for $1.7 billion. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> so that was really funny this, this guy you see Adam Rattani said uh He's like, God, what part of this is actually killing off the fat? And I'm thinking, I don't care, it's just working, you know, but he was, he was right. a scientist. He was, he was actually, I think, a dermatology resident at UCLA Davis, or UCLA, so that was brilliant. So we were offering that, and the business grew really fast. One of the things I was, I was actually learning about one of the other services, and I met this guy, Jeff Hunt, in Florida in 2004, who was doing what's called ultrasound-guided sclerotherapy, which is a way you treat varicose veins with a shot. Okay. And it really was brand new in America. There was a few people doing it, but it was probably like less than 100 to 1% of vein treatments because everybody was doing surgery at that time. Right. So he only trained one person ever, and that was me. He trained me how to do it. He had done about 60,000 procedures at that time. And he trained me how to do this. And at that time, we were learning from other countries to make this ultra-guided sclerotype even work better mm-hmm. okay, because it really wasn't common in America, so you, you know, learn from, from the Europeans. And I started doing that, and we, we wound up having a lot of varicose vein patients be able to get relief of their unsightly varicose veins. Mm-hmm. We don't do, really do that much now. We really focus on, on more serious medical veins. But they get rid of their unsightly varicose veins, very inexpensive, without getting cut, without having a surgery. Sure. And then about 2005, they came up with a better way to do it. So instead of using a chemical to damage the non-functioning veins, we would use a laser or radio frequency. Mm-hmm. And that was covered by insurance for more significant veins. So we started doing that and, and took insurance for it and started really focusing on people with sicker and sicker leg veins. And then I had a, a guy, uh, Jerry, who was sent to me by his doctor, and he had extremely bad legs. He had had previous surgical stripping, multiple blood clots, and a big swollen leg that was probably eventually getting amputated. It was so oh, sick. Wow. In and out of the hospital. He was actually dis- disabled, couldn't really walk without a walker. And uh, he had a lot of these things called perforator veins, which are veins that connect the outside to the inside. And at that time, there was really, there was a treatment for it that was a surgery that he couldn't have because he was too high risk. It was called a seps procedure where you actually cut the, cut the vein. And uh, I'd been experimenting with something with my lasers. I talked about me doing the laser on these perforator veins. Nobody had ever done them yet with, mm-hmm. uh, with at least to my knowledge, they hadn't with a laser. So we started treating these perforator veins. I had to get a special different fiber and use, use a different kit to do it. And uh, over a few months, I treated all these perforated veins. His leg actually shrunk down to normal size. Sores went away. And I saw him 10 years later. It's like, almost like a normal leg. And prior to that time, we didn't know that could exist. So I started focusing on treating ugly legs. Right. And we still did the cosmetic stuff, but we focused on ugly legs. And uh, I did 400 of these patients with perforated veins. That I submitted my data to the company so I can get, you know, get approval for it eventually. 
And uh, that morphed us into really more of the venous disease, even mm-hmm. though we were still doing a lot of the cosmetic stuff, which we're kind of famous for in Detroit, sure. cosmetic angle. And we had this one successful office in Shelby Township. It was really robust, busy location. Mm-hmm. And in 2011, I decided to try to expand the business into another area of Detroit. So I went as far away as possible to Livonia. And uh, things just weren't going as good as they were in Shelby. Like we had a lot of demand, but we really weren't profitable there. We were actually losing money. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't figure out why we weren't getting the same outcome in Livonia. We were in Shelby Township because I didn't know how to run a business. I've been mean, ah, worked in the hospital before. Mm-hmm. So I did it three more times in 2015, opened three more places, and uh, we almost failed. So, so what happened is that we grew a lot that year, but we actually lost money. And that's when I realized I was, I was incompetent to run a business. I could be like the doctor seeing patients and make a successful, profitable practice, but I did not know how to scale. So that hit me like a ton of bricks. Unfortunately, I mean, we're financially healthy enough I could sustain a loss, but I had to figure out how to run a business. So I started reading, I committed to reading two business books a week. I got myself several business coaches, started attending business meetings. I didn't know these things existed prior to that time. Right. And uh, I started backing off on my own surgical practice. I was doing a lot of cosmetic surgery at the time. The veins were being done by other people. And in 2016, about September, is when really we started making a huge change where I was able to turn the business around and get things going in the right direction. And other four locations that had prior to that been losing money all of a sudden became profitable. They actually grew by about four or 500% in that time period. And in 2017, we had now had a professional leadership team. We had uh, a meeting rhythm for our company. We had a way to communicate things throughout the organization. We had seven or five, I'm sorry, we had five locations, but we were getting the same outcome everywhere. We were getting the same patient satisfaction everywhere. We were getting the same number of, same outcomes per, you know, we were able to deliver our services. We had really good call center. And at that time in 2017, we were getting healthy again. I was happy that, you know, we had gone through a period where early on, you know, business was really successful, just me and a practice. And then I scaled it, failed, fixed it again. Now we're successful again. And I had read in a, a PR newswire that there were 683,000 of these what's called endovenous ablation procedures, which is kind of the backbone of the venous insufficiency practice. The, the varicose vein practice is 90% of them, 95%, really treating sicker legs. But what turned out is that we had done about 1% of all those procedures in North America. I'm like, that just makes no sense. We're going to Detroit. Right. So I dug into the data, and I found out there's a few cities, Detroit, Houston, a few other cities, where somebody had a big practice multiplayer areas, and they were actually lowering healthcare costs related to these untreated venous disease patients. Because if you let them go, if somebody has varicose veins, it might be fine forever, but they have swollen, heavy legs. Eventually, they get these sores, and it's called a venous stasis ulcer. And in 2014, there was a paper written that we had spent about $16 billion with dressings and wound management and complications related to these ulcers. But we spent almost nothing curing the cause, which was right in front of our face. I mean, I was one of the guys that developed it. I was well familiar with it. And we had been doing it. And we had really shifted our practice from cosmetic. We still do the cosmetic stuff in a couple locations, but really focusing on this advanced venous disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a good service line for us. We liked doing it. We have an impact on the community. But what I didn't know is we could actually lower health care costs. So in 2017, I wrote a vivid vision statement for our company, where we're going to be. We were only in Detroit. I never thought about expanding outside of here because I didn't know how to run five businesses here right. prior year. And uh, I decided that we were going to set a plan to save $10 billion a year in healthcare costs in the United States by 2025. And I had to figure out how to get there. Right. So uh, we made some plans that we're going to have three times the industry's profitability, pay our employees more, and work less hours to do it. Which, when you make something wildly high goal, 
Now you got to do things differently because mm-hmm. you can grow something thirty percent just by working harder and not sleeping on Saturday night. But uh, right. to go grow ten x, uh, you got to got to think differently. So making that framework, I was able to work with my team to figure out how to really put enough processes in our system that we can we could scale it. And uh, we made several processes. One of them is called the abundance machine, and I wrote a book about it. And that's how basically the the sales cycle in our practice. Somebody comes in with venous disease, there's a million reasons why they might be interested in getting treated and it never happens. Mm-hmm. We find in businesses like ours, only about 30% of customers that want treatment actually get it because there's all these barriers, insurance, a drive-in, the doctor's too busy, whatever it is, there's all these things that get in the way. And then when they finally get bad enough, they wind up in the hospital where they start incurring huge medical bills and they do more, they, they would only do traditional care of an ulcer in a hospital, they're never gonna do anything modern like we're doing takes a long time for that stuff to adopt. So we decided to scale it. We went to a practice. We looked at where there's a lot of old-fashioned stuff versus new-fashioned stuff going on, and we made a list of all the cities in the country based on are they doing a lot of the old stuff or are they doing some of the new stuff. We'll start with the ones doing a lot of old stuff. Usually towns dominated by hospital systems, but they really don't want this because it doesn't lower. I mean, hospitals only survive if healthcare costs stay high and disease persists. So this is a fundamental thing with healthcare. It's actually disease care. And to think that the healthcare system currently is designed to save healthcare dollars or make you healthy, it's actually not. You think about anything you do that makes you healthy, insurance doesn't cover it. For example, they were required by Congress in 2011 with the Affordable Health Care Act to screen for cancer. Prior to the time, insurance companies were not required to pay for cancer screening. They were forced to by Congress. What about heart disease? Hmm. So first of all, cholesterol is a waste of money. Uh, it's totally unrelated to heart disease. They're using all these statin drugs that we use for people that have not had a heart attack, there's no clinical evidence that it actually does anything, yet we spend, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And uh, treating heart attacks, heart disease in, in general, about $864 billion a year. However, we can screen it and pick it up 10 years in advance and really just hyper-focus on those people. Right. But it's not covered. The screening for heart disease is not covered by insurance. So you got to pay it out of your pocket, which means most doctors won't offer it. Right. Anyways, I'm getting off track with that. That's like, <laughs> kind of like a pet peeve of mine that we don't, we don't incentivize health. We incentivize disease. You know, how doctors make more when people are sicker. Mm-hmm. So good hospitals do. So the, uh, we went to we, the practice in Greenville, South Carolina. It was a doctor that had a successful practice, but he had a, a health reason that he had to kind of have an exit at some point. Mm-hmm. Great guy, had a good business. He was doing stuff like we were doing. He was really treating ugly legs, but he really didn't have a business process. He was like us in the early days where he didn't really know how to run a business, and he was, he was interested in working with us. So we acquired his practice, and we grew it 500% in five months. Okay, and we did oh is, no marketing, just just changing the business processes. So there's, there's different steps in our process. Step number two, I'll say this clean, is called answer the effing phone. And when I called for something that's amazing, they don't answer, answer the effing phone. That's your first door into the practice. Next actually step number two. Step number one is how do you get people to know you're there, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we put those processes in place and we scaled it and then we did that several times since then. So we went from five to uh, 28 practices in about a year and a half. And now we're taking a tactical pause to fix some of the back office. So when we started really scaling, I focused on front stage things, things that I knew how to do. Like I knew how to treat patients and get them production. But I never really took in consideration billing, accounting, HR, IT, all the back office support right. stuff. So sure. we basically, the wheels fell off the first quarter of this year where we had wildly successful practices in Michigan. The out-of-state offices really weren't doing quite so well. So we didn't get in a situation where we're, you know, like we're failed, but we got in a situation where now we got to stop and look at all those other systems that we overloaded our system. For example, our billing department, they hit a 
brick wall oh. with the volume. And uh-huh. we, I didn't even think about that, right? I mean, that sounds stupid, but I didn't think about it. We had to you know, send the bills out. So right now we're working on creating a process for each one of those things. And I really wanted to grow it faster in that time so I could see what would break because it really was easy just doing one. So now we're in kind of like I call it a lower 2.0 I'm working on right now. We're going to kind of decentralize the uh, practices. A lot, of, a lot of our business operations runs right here up Shelby Township, which I think is dangerous. doesn't allow for innovation. And uh, we're going to slow down growth probably for about six months, fix some of the fundamentals that are backstage things, billing, accounting, HR, IT, finance, treasury. And then we'll go through another growth spurt because we get to a $10 billion year savings. We got to have about 125 metropolitan statistical areas. We got presence in there. So that's going to take a lot of, like, so we got to grow five times again. And uh, to grow five times in practices in a year and a half, I grow another five times, it'll probably take a little bit more in a year and a half. I try to make it go a little slower than the next time. And we did it all with no outside money, no debt, right. no loans. It's incredible. A uh, little bit of owner financing. When we buy the practice, we pay them over you know, a couple of years or something. So uh, that's that's been kind of fun. And uh, you know, if you want to read my book, it's the Abundance Machine. It's on, on Amazon. It's it's. I wrote it for doctors in our business, but you could substitute dentist or plumber. You know, you'd substitute anything. It's the same same. Any thing. Like, any business really. Yeah, like, like answer the effing phone is kind of universal. Right. Right. I, I'm just kind of shocked at how. You were calling and and like I called. I was calling for something. I can't remember what it was, but she answers the phone and says, uh, "Can you hold, please?" And then ask, wait for an answer because I couldn't hold. Right. right. So I'd hang up. Right. Right. <laughs> but sure. Said, like, you could say, "What are you calling for?" I could say, "If you're busy, I'll call back." But it was just that 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 situation. And I've been to offices and I cringe when I see the person that is recept this receptionist answering the phone because I know that doctor is turning away patients because you can't be talking to somebody, right. interrupt that conversation, and then do a good call. Right. Do a good call on phone. When we first started doing what our call center, it was really early in our practice, and this girl, Jackie, who worked here with us for a long time, she, I noticed that she was really good at handling people on the phone, but she couldn't multitask. Mm-hmm. And because multitasking means that you can't be good on the phone. So her <laughs> skill was being present when somebody was in front of her, mm-hmm. okay? Got so it. then if she's talking to somebody, she can't answer the phone. If she can't answer the phone, she can't try to get them off the, and so she really had that good skill. So we actually put her almost like, in, well, it was a closet. We put her in a closet, and it was a big closet, no windows, and uh, all of a sudden, our new patients went up because she was effective. And then she hired somebody else and trained them, and then she started building out a system for a good you know, call center. And uh, she's actually moved on to a couple other careers. It's been interesting watching her grow, but she basically built a call center, and. Uh, it was like watching that skill set and uh, something that simple can transform a business. Sure. By separating the person that's answering the phone from every from everyday work, maybe give them interruptible tasks, like they could work on spreadsheets or something right, like that. Right, right. When we get them in, one of the things we find is that offices put all kinds of friction in the way. Mm-hmm. There's something called authorization that takes a long time. We got to get approval from their insurance company. And maybe that takes seven days of diligence or a month if you're not diligent. So if you shorten that down to seven days, the patient will more likely convert into production. We make them wait a month. Something else happens. Life gets in the way. Right. And we see, you know, I've evaluated probably 100 practices, and we see in typically about 75% of people get turned away for various reasons. Oh, my gosh. You know? Wow. So that's how we can grow some 5X without just driving huge number of calls. Well, as we wrap up, I want to ask you about this. Um, you believe that the staff who has ownership thinking minds is a staff that functions very well. Talk about that. We looked at companies with the best culture in the United States, Salesforce, Quicken Loans. We started interviewing people and what they did to reproduce their culture. Because as we're buying these practices, we're 
not really in the medical business. We're in an integration of culture business. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what my team does. They integrate cultures. So Quicken Loans right here in Detroit, so we interviewed some of the employees there, and they use a process they call isms. And that's where they would define their culture very clearly, write it out, discuss it, and then talk about it on a regular basis. And we, we created our 12 isms. We actually hired the guy that built Quicken Loans culture, Rod. And um, one of our isms is ownership thinking. Mm-hmm. And ownership thinking is where pretend you own this business, right? But then we also can share in the profits. And so when we're profitable, on a weekly basis, we 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 divvy it up with the staff. And if they think like owners, then that's really long ways towards getting success. And really, the culture trumps strategy every time. So that is one of our cultures. We have other ones as well that are really important to us. We're kind of doing a reboot about just something called values, core values. Mm-hmm. And we have core values are kind of like what I call permission to play, like say being trustworthy. If you stole from us, you would be definitely fired. But our culture is more of like the, of the who we are. That's it's different than a core value. The culture versus the isms, which we call it isms, like a like an iconic name versus uh, values. Values are what has to happen for you to work here. What we lose money to protect. And isms are is the who we are. Mm-hmm. Part of us, what we are, is we want to think like owners. Right. It's a great it's a great concept and it is working for you. Well, thank you once again. Great information. And thanks for for giving this information to our listeners. Dr. Mo, appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Healthy Business. We'll see you next time.